So everybody can picture, I'm sure, the game show Jeopardy and uh, his eminence, Alex Trebek, right? Everybody can picture that. So if grace is the answer, or as us proud Protestants like to say, if grace alone is the answer, what's the question? What were the great reformers trying to do and say? Or before them, what we call the early church fathers? Or before them, Paul or Jesus? And then I also want you to think for a moment this morning, uh, how does grace work as knowledge? Like, is, is grace some sort of mystical religious idea? Or is it knowledge? And if so, what of it? So what is the question? Is the question then, if grace alone is the answer, is the question, how are my sins forgiven apart from works? Or maybe the question is, Alex, how do I go to heaven when I die? Well, I want you to just kind of hold those thoughts for a moment, and which I know have been kind of the tapes that have played in all of our minds, sometimes for some of us in this room, decades. And let's see if we can just hold those in pause for a moment this morning and think a bit about grace. And I want to begin by saying, why seek knowledge of grace? Here's why. Knowledge, simply put, we don't have time for a <coughs> philosophical lecture here, nor would I be the best person to give it. But knowledge, simply put, is that which allows you to deal successfully with reality. That's all it really is. When you have true beliefs about reality, then you can navigate it successfully. So for instance, you got in your car this morning and you drove here believing that you had enough gas in your tank to get here. Well, if you didn't, reality doesn't care what you think. Are we connecting here? Reality doesn't care what we think, reality just is. Like, if you think there's a door in that wall, and you believe it with all your heart, and you walk into it, all you're going to get is a bruised or bloody nose. So when someone like Paul says, I'm trying to persuade men, when Jesus says things like, I'm the way, I'm light, do you suppose they thought they were teaching us things that are actually true? Knowledge. See, a car mechanic or a brain surgeon who have true beliefs about car engines and brains, this then frees them to do their work. Did you catch that? It's, it's surgeons who have true knowledge about the anatomy of the body and all the rest of the stuff that they know, which is way over my head. It's that knowledge that allows them to deal successfully with what's going on in the human body. So when this religious notion that's been at the pinnacle of everything for five or six hundred years as the answer, I want us to stop and think, what's the question? If that's knowledge, if grace is not just mystical, religious, kind of conceptual, abstract stuff, if it actually, if Jesus and Paul and the other writers of the New Testament were actually trying to communicate knowledge to us, then let's stop and think about that for a moment. And I want to suggest as we just get into this, that if grace is the answer, maybe the question is something like this. How and where do I fit in God's great plan? 
Or maybe something like this. How am I made competent for life in the kingdom? If a car mechanic is made competent by his knowledge of cars, how does grace help me to be competent for life in the way of Jesus, life in the kingdom, life as salt and light as we just read, or life as ambassadors of the kingdom of God? So if you look at your text this morning, especially beginning in verse 8, um, we see where Paul is talking about how Jesus, how, excuse me, God, has showered grace upon us in these incomparable riches of his grace that was expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And Paul's really bragging about this, that, that somehow as we are in Christ, that we're raised together with him, we're seated with him, we're somehow together in him. He is the first fruits of what God's doing. We're somehow caught up in all that. And then Paul says, you know, these famous words, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, which is just simply saying saving is all God's idea. And it's all his work. It's God's gift from start to finish. We neither save ourselves nor make ourselves. God is both the maker and the savior. So then he says, we're God's handiwork. So first he says this all happens by grace, but now he begins to tell us what's actually happening. And he says that we're God's handiwork, that we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this is what our gospel reading this morning was alerting us to, that this salvation, this thing that God's doing through grace, the outpouring of God's mercy, the outpouring of his kindness, adopting us into his family, putting us in Christ, working with us as the body of Christ who is the head, so that what's stunning to Paul is something like this. What happened to Jesus is now happening to us. We're resurrected. We're new. We're someday going to be seated where Jesus is in the heavenlies. And so Paul is thinking through all this and saying that I sort of, I get this now, that Jesus came as salt and light. And then now Matthew says, you're here to be the salt seasoning that brings out all the God flavors of the earth. You're here now to be light, bringing out all the God colors of the world. So shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives because you're God's handiwork. And in the same way that he was working through Jesus, he's working through you as his handcrafted piece of art. Now, the reason this is so important is that we all understand that grace is not antithetical to work or to the workplace. Because for most of us, we spend our lives in the workplace. And what the story of Genesis, which Genesis 1 and 2 has been a major point of meditation and study for the Christian church as long as it's been around and for the, the Jewish people before us. And if Genesis tells us anything about God, it's that he works. But he works in peace. And what he creates becomes the container through which we experience grace. From frogs to oxygen to camels to water. God created it all, and it becomes the space in which we both experience his grace and become those who shine it to others by keeping open house, by, by doing the kinds of things that he calls us to do. 
And so all of our work is preceded by and takes place in his workplace. Light and oxygen and food and water. And what this Genesis story alerts us to is that work came before the curse. God said, come be with me. Come be my cooperative friends. Be salt bearers, light bearers. Be ambassadors of my kingdom, he said essentially to Adam and Eve. Then came the fall. Then came the curse. But cooperative, ongoing relationship with God that has a participatory, active nature to it has been around since long before the curse. So our work emerges from and uses these gifts of grace and is therefore made graceful in that way. So it's important to say, just thinking again about if grace is the answer, what's the question? I think it's important to say that grace is not just free. See, again, for us Protestants, that's the main thing we want to say, free. And we want to say gift. And of course, that's true. I've got no, obviously, I have no, uh, no qualm with that at all. But that tells us very little. When you only say free, when you only say gift, you haven't actually said very much. Because one still has to ask, what's this for? What's this gift for? Okay, it's free. I get it. Okay, it's a gift. I didn't earn it. I get it. But you still have to ask, what's it for? What's its purpose? And I want to suggest that what if grace is this? What if grace is so much bigger than anything we've ever thought of? What if grace is something like the means through which we're enabled to find our place in God's enormous eternal cosmic purposes. What if grace is something like a midwife that ushers us into this thing that God's doing so that when he says, if anyone's new in Christ, this new creation has come and the old is gone and something new's here. And I've committed to you this message of reconciliation. So this is just a little uh, aside. I'll toss it in for free. I actually don't think we have to worry much about works these days. I can't tell you the last time I met a committed Pelagian at a Starbucks <laughs> who just said to me, I actually think I can work my way to heaven. No, come on, this, this is not rocket science. This is not genius stuff. That kind of thinking requires Christendom. That kind of thinking requires a basic sort of Christian atmosphere. That kind of thinking grew out of medieval Christendom. It requires belief in God. It requires belief in heaven and hell. To think that you can actually work your way to heaven requires belief in heaven. Well, increasingly, people don't even believe in heaven. That's not our problem today. We need to be done fighting the battles of five or 600 years ago and find out how do I place my life in Christ so that what God was doing in him and what God is doing him as he's seated at the right hand of the Father, how do I get in on that? And the answer is grace. The answer is in the same place that God made a universe in which we can experience his grace and become dispensers of grace. He's making that thing in us. So it's something like this. Uh, John Stott, who recently passed uh, English pastor and scholar who I was fond of, uh, told a story of when he was going to seminary at Ridley Hall at Cambridge, the president of Ridley retired and they put a big portrait on the wall. And during the ceremony unveiling this portrait, the president, I can't remember his name, said, here's what I hope happens, because he so loved the portrait. 
said, here's what I hope happens, that no one will ever ask, who is that man? But that all who pass by here would ask, who painted that portrait? That's the question. You don't have to worry about living an active participatory life in Christ as if somehow you'd be, you know, engaging in works. That is not our battle today. Our battle is to let God make a portrait out of us. So the grace and salvation are not its. These aren't doctrines or ideas or schemes. We're who's saved. Are you feeling me here? If you want to know grace, do not turn to a theological dictionary. If you want to know grace, have an interactive, ongoing, conversational relationship with God. And in that, you will find grace and you will be transformed. On and on and on into this image of Christ so that at some point we're going to find ourselves completely cooperating with him. In the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 22, 5 says, we will find ourselves fully, easily, naturally, and organically being in on what he's up to. And that's the question that grace answers. Grace is not a magic potion that you pour on your sin, sort of like goo gone, you know, and then, okay, it's all good. No, Paul's very clear. We're who's saved. Look at the pronoun in, in uh, verse 10. You are God's poema. You and you and you and you. Not a concept. This isn't abstract. This is not theology. This is personal and relationship, relational in particular. You are God's work of art. You're his masterpiece. Not mountains and rivers and stuff as beautiful as they are, but you are his masterpiece. So to live in a world characterized and showered by God's grace, we have to find a way to actively participate in this grace. There's no other options. Just like there's either a door in that wall or there's not. There's no plan B. It's either grace or nothing. And this grace is experienced, as I've said. It's not primarily explained. And this is what I, I guess if you don't hear anything else I hear this morning, please hear this. Here's how most of us really roll. We take breaks from real life to experience grace. That's how most of us really roll. You want to just get really honest? That's how I roll too much of the time. I take breaks from life from this thing that God created that was all of grace and made to facilitate grace and to, and to um, enable grace-filled lives. And I find myself living sort of life, and then I have to remind myself to pause to experience grace. Well, what if grace could be the thing in which we actually live life? What if life could actually be a participation in the grace of God? Well, this is tricky. Here's why it's tricky. And I have to say in public, because it's true, I sometimes hate Eugene Peterson. Um, because he is just my, if any of you know him, he is just my constant sort of pastoral rebuke. So I'm reading a book by Eugene this week, and I come across this subchapter, subsection in a chapter that says, acquired passivity. Did you hear that? Acquired passivity. And I'm going, what the H-E double toothpicks? You know, because if you're anything like me, when I see the word passivity, I think insipid, spineless, lazy, lacking gumption, right? <laughs> and what most of us admire, I'll speak for myself, and what we try to imitate is get up and go and hustle and drive. And this all gets rationalized 
Because, well, to make money or acquire academic degrees or climb Mount Everest or hit home runs, whatever, this all takes energy and ambition and single-minded purpose. Yeah, of course. It's obvious that that's true. Here's the problem. Those goals, no matter how much they're lauded by our culture, they have very little to do in themselves with living a mature life of grace. And all you got to do is click on MSN or Yahoo or something occasionally. And another athlete embarrassed his team. Uh, another starlet did something stupid. It's just on. Another investment banker did something illegal. It's on and on and on again. Because when life is what's central and religion and spirituality is only marginal to that life, then living such a life can never produce mature embodiers of grace. Because these things can be pursued without conscience. I did it. I pursued hitting home runs totally without conscience, without love, compassion, humility, generosity, holiness. The immature celebrities and athletes and people that we can call to our mind, it, it, I should, this shouldn't even have to be said, but can, can we say it anyway? They are radically different than Jesus and Paul. Can we just say that? They are totally admired by our culture, but they are radically different. They could not be more different than Jesus and Paul and what they're calling for. So let's end where we began. Is Paul, when he talks about grace, is he giving us something to argue with Catholics about? Or is he giving us knowledge? Is he, expo is he giving us a big window into the reality of the kingdom and how we find our life, derive our life from it, and live our life in that kingdom reality? Here's the last thought. It just Because this is a, just a good thing you can take away and mull over this week. What if faith in Jesus is a plunge into grace? What if what's really going on here when we say I have faith or I believe in Jesus? See, that's, that's a statement of knowledge. What if that's a plunge into grace? What if faith in Jesus is really a comprehensive, fundamental reorientation away from living anxiously, away from living by my wits and muscle, to a place of living in ease, living in the knowledge of reality, reality being this trinity of persons who are completely competent love, and that that love is in action in the world. It's present, and that's the grace of God in our lives. So if you bow your head now for a, a word of quiet, a moment of quiet, I want to just place these words before your mind again. Faith in Jesus is a plunge into grace. Faith in Jesus is a plunge into grace. Faith in Jesus is a plunge into grace.